Hello, welcome to IntelliCast. This is Season 3, Episode 32. Today is a exciting episode. Joining me today is Producer Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, how are you? Great. And Andrew DeSillis. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Brian. Andrew has been on the podcast as much as about anybody this year, I think. This is about your fourth or fifth appearance, just this year. At least. Happy to have you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, this episode brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. You can reach us at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research, or IntelliCast1 on Twitter. You can leave us a voicemail or a text at 513-401-5463. By the way, Producer Brian, I've got a topic for us. Okay, what you got? Before we get to our interview, we have an interview, by the way, with Steve Bernard. He's the Senior Vice President at The Link Group. We'll talk more about that in a second, but a quick topic. So... You know, we haven't talked about this story. I don't know why. So we got blocked on Twitter on our telecast. We did. We got it. We got it because apparently it's not, we're not old enough to have Twitter. Okay. Why didn't you reach out to me to ask me about this? Oh, because I already submitted all the paperwork to try to get it turned back on. All right. So I'm waiting for them to respond. I realized I had to take a picture of my driver's license and send it to them. When so Twitter, Twitter literally thought that we were a child too young to use the internet. Here's what happened. Yeah. And I can't believe Brian didn't even – he hasn't talked to me about it. So the other night I was on our – I don't get on that Twitter account very often, but I was just following a few people and seeing what was going on, thinking of a Prince retort from that tweet Twitter account. And I was like, huh, I'll update some information on here while I'm here. I'm like an idiot. You changed the birthday, didn't you? I changed the birthday. Guess what date I chose for our birthday? The day we started the podcast? Yep. So Twitter thinks we're- Set that up so we- Yes. So it doesn't- Yeah. Come on. And and it was like instant, instant blocking. Like, you are not old enough to be on here. Within seconds, Twitter blocked me. (laughs) And I can't believe you didn't read that. But but if we were only as old as the podcast is old, we would not be able to read or write to use Twitter. Doesn't matter. Their their policy is you have to be 13 years or older to use Twitter. And if you put in a birthday that is younger than that, they will shut it off. So you're the reason I had to take a picture at 7.30 in the evening. Yeah. Three? And send it to Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. This happened just a couple of nights ago. And I laughed so hard because I saw the email come like instantaneously. As soon as I put the age in, I knew that Brian was going to immediately like – Take, try to take care of it, but I, I was expecting a text, which we never got. No. So here's on my side. I am sitting outside doing my new favorite activity, sitting in my hammock, watching my kids play on that, and I hear my phone beep, so I look, and I see this message come in from Twitter saying, your account's been deactivated. What the? So I go in, and I have fall. It's like, oh, you can't get in. I'm like, well, what, what is going on? It says <laughs> I have to send verification of age. I'm like, is, am I about to get my identity stolen? What is going on? And I went through everything. No, it came to the twi- the IntelliCast page. And no, this is a le- – and then I signed in through Twitter. And like, no, this is legit. Yeah, we, we – it has been almost 48 hours and we're still locked out of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So yeah, good luck. If you're trying to add us on the IntelliCast 1 uh, Twitter account. We've um, been suspended. Because yeah, we're two years old. Uh, apparently, I need to take your permission away from this. I know. Yeah. Apparently, why? What was I thinking? I've, I think I've tweeted one time from that account. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, that was the sidebar. Um, this is very exciting. I'm all in. <laughs> all right. Well, enough of that. Let's get to our interview. Let's talk about Steve Bernard, who is the senior vice president of the Link Group, and um, Link Group is a an awesome market research company that is, I guess, in the Atlanta suburbs as well as North Carolina. And Steve Bernard's been in research for about 25 years. One thing I loved about the interview, Andrew, is that, I don't know, the both him and like Terry Crawford, we talked to him, they've just been in research for so long. They have like a, almost a calming uh, presence about them that's just poised and he's a strong researcher. He's super smart and it gives me um, a lot of confidence in the future of research by talking to him. What did you, what did you think? Well, yeah, I think he's definitely, you know, I, they're both 
very, like you said, smart, experienced researchers. And Steve as well, you know, he, he, I think, so before I ever met Steve, I was really intimidated to meet him actually, right? Because he's, you know, senior vice president. And, you know, I'm just looking at him on LinkedIn before we meet for lunch. Um, and he has a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the yeah. University of Tennessee. And I was just like, what am I getting myself into? This guy is so smart. This is going to be really scary. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, right? It was, you know, I'd only been selling for a couple of years at the time. But in just what a down-to-earth, relatable, interesting, passionate researcher to get to have a conversation with. Yep. Just a- absolutely phenomenal. This is part of our... All right, you're going to have to help me here, Brian. Our special speaker series, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. And so he's going to talk a little bit about data quality, um, a lot about healthcare research, which um, I'm surprised this is probably the first time we've had more than about a 30-second conversation about healthcare research. And you can tell immediately that he has to be an expert not only in research and methodology and all of the things that most well-rounded research have, re- researchers have to be experts in, but also he gets very detailed in terms of like pharmaceuticals and healthcare and all of the challenges that, I mean, it's a whole another can of worms is to try to understand the healthcare industry and the researchers at the link group. I think he mentioned a lot of their research, was it 70% of their research is healthcare? So they all have to kind of understand that. So let's just get the interview. This is Steve Bernard. He's the senior vice president of the link group. Joining us now, we have Steve Bernard, who is the senior vice president at the link group. Hey, Steve, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. I really appreciate you joining us. We've we've never... Um, well, let me get your background first before I kind of talk about the topic. But yeah, so what's, what's kind of your background in your current role at the Link Group? Um, well, right now I'm a senior vice president, and I sort of lead the quantitative group within our organization. We've kind of gotten big enough now. We're about 83 people and counting and bringing on a new crew actually in the next two weeks of about eight or nine people. Uh, We've gotten a little bit more, I don't want to say silo because we are still pretty integrated together, but there are a number of us who work primarily on quantitative research and a number of us who work primarily on qualitative. Uh, We do a lot of uh, quant and qual work together, so we're constantly collaborating together. But I probably spend about 95% of my time doing quantitative work I do a lot of consulting. I mean, I've been around the business long enough, over 25 years uh, at this point, which is hard to believe. So I do a lot of internal consulting. Um, I drive a lot of the best practices in segmentation and conjoint and Van Westendorp, and a lot of the quantitative designs that we use, as well as do a lot of sales and um, helping out with proposals and things like that. I still like to get involved pretty heavily in project management, kind of keeps me sharp and it keeps me up to date and into the numbers. I, I can't, you know, I can't stay away from a, a data set for too long. I like to dig in and clean data or do analyses or, or somebody's usually asking me also about uh, doing a key driver analysis or doing some other kind of modeling work. I do a lot of the forecasting work here at the company. So, um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm spread, spread pretty broadly and across a lot of industries as well which is really nice because again, being in the business so long, it's nice to get that variety and kind of see some of the different areas and bring that together in what I'm working on. And, and like I said, I got people from all over the company calling me randomly. So it's just kind of fun to interact with the different people and kind of branch out on a quantitative perspective. That sounds like a tough role. You mentioned, I don't know, <laughs> like you mentioned a lot of different kind of full-time jobs there. You, you kind of mentioned that it keeps you sharp. I agree. I do a lot of different things as well. And I enjoy getting my hands dirty and all the different things. And it, it keeps me sharp as well. But I feel like that's, you're you're kind of in that medium-sized company range, right? Yes. And so you're still wearing a lot of hats. I'm, I'm impressed by that, by the way. Yeah, it's funny. When I first started, I was doing probably, we were, we were maybe 15 people. And I was doing, and everybody did everything, as you can imagine. So I was moderating focus groups and IDIs, um, I quickly decided that probably was not my forte. You know, I was yeah. okay at it, but I, you know, as soon as we got big enough, so where I could more specialize and there was enough work for me to do in the quantitative arena, I, you know, I quickly headed over that direction. 
And I've been at the company a long time, so I've had a lot of time to kind of work through some of those best practices. So all that long list that I gave is is a lot of years accumulated on each other. So I can kind of yep. tap into some of the old documents I put together here and there. So it definitely helps. Awesome. And we kind of wanted to bring you on because um, this, we've done this podcast for two and a half years. I don't think we've ever spoken about healthcare research. Okay. That's kind of crazy to me that we've never talked about it because it's such a huge part of marketing research, especially um, during the current you know, pandemic with COVID-19. And so I'm really happy to have you on to talk about kind of the healthcare research that you're doing. And maybe the first question would be, has there been an impact to it in the past couple of months due to COVID-19? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And, and there's a little bit of a, a yes and no. So our about 75% of our business is pharmaceutical. And uh, which means we have some exposure and that's actually intentional. There have been times we have conversations about, well, let's be less pharma because we want to be more diversified, more experiences. You know, when people, you know, some of the diseases we deal with are not very fun to to talk about and talk with patients about. And there's a little, um, you know, it's obviously not a positive conversation. So it's kind of nice for people who are doing that a lot to have exposure in some other areas. You know, let's go talk about toilet paper. Let's go talk about you know, um, buying something off the shelf that, that's, you know, that, that's more typical. So uh, it gives people more of a variety. But, you know, we just found that there is a big need for the research we do and the type of service that we provide in the pharmaceutical area. And we just kind of built up such an expertise to, expertise in it that, you know, we're, we're dealing with most of the large pharmaceutical companies at this point. So we probably do probably 350 projects a year, pharma projects a year. So, um, oh yeah, it's... It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of therapeutic areas as well. So to answer your question, a lot of the work that we do is early on in development. So is there you know, an extension for this molecule? Is there a market for it? We've noticed in the last 20 years that the, the number of medications and molecules out there has just proliferated like crazy. So a lot of the markets that drugs are moving into are very, very crowded so it almost feels like even more now that there's a need for more research to find out, is there a place for this? I mean, we're, we're showing, you know, not even an efficacy increase, but maybe a slight safety increase, but maybe the dosing isn't as convenient. So there's these, you know, nuanced trade-offs that they're trying to figure out. Do we spend another $400 million moving this molecule forward into uh, development and launch? So having said that, with the pandemic coming along, there we did see some contraction in the part of our business that wasn't pharma. So obviously, you know, retail was pretty well hit. Everyone's stepping back. And even though some are doing okay um, in other areas outside of pharmaceutical, others are sort of like, okay, let's put a pause on everything. Let's check the pulse. Let's figure out what's happening here over the next couple of months. We don't want to blow through budgets on market research because that's not going to be part of our core strategy moving forward if we're trying to keep in business if this thing continues. So that part of our business has contracted a little bit. The pharmaceutical also, there was a bit of a reaction in that way, trying to step back and say, so what's going on? What do we have? And it was almost, it almost seems like it was more a function of um, the relationships within the organization, just the, the 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 HR aspects of people coordinating and working and now working from home and trying to figure out what they're doing more than an industry thing, because the need for pharmaceuticals is still going to be there. You know, very quickly, it feels like within the first several weeks, at least, it's like, okay, this is bad, but the whole economy isn't collapsing. We need to keep forging forward. And we need to keep moving our research because our molecules, again, th this is something we've invested already hundreds of millions of dollars in. And this is going to get launched in two or three years. So that timeline means we still need to be pursuing this. We can't put this on pause. We have too much invested in it. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying that, um, you know, in, in some areas we did see a little bit. In pharmaceutical, it seemed like, you know, for four to six weeks, we were seeing fewer RFPs coming in. But then now, again, we're very fortunate that this is the case, but now we're seeing more start to come in. And I think as people are getting more used to working at home and, and some of them are going back into the office and everyone's sort of got a handle that, that, yeah, this is not good by any stretch. 
but you know things are going to move forward. The economy is going to open up at some point. People are going to need these drugs. So the research is opening up more now. And so some of the bandwidth and cap- uh, capacity issues we were having very early this year and all last year are starting to come back now. Again, we're very, very fortunate that that's the case, but that's sort of been the state of from what I've seen from my perspective. <clears throat> that's so interesting. I, it's, so, you know, most of your clients are probably figuring out how to work from home and figure out what this, what, what they have to do to accomplish the research and just like all of us, right? And so mm-hmm. that's so interesting to me that it was kind of a little bit of a blip or pause before they kind of got back into it. Mm-hmm. What about like methodology? I'm assuming that you mentioned that you do a lot of qual at the link group. Did do you see a rap those those that qual rapidly move online um, or pause? What did what did you kind of see from a method methodology standpoint? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't I don't do as I mentioned a lot of qualitative work, but we've been part of a lot of strategy meetings internally. We're meeting even more often now and on a pretty regular basis. On the qualitative side, you know, given the disease states that we're in, and um, you know, some of those pockets, even on the physician side. It's a you have to be pretty geographically spread. And you know, again, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, everyone was getting on a plane and going to every city. Nowadays, we've slowly shifted more and more to where we are, you know, very much, you know, doing a lot of the qualitative work anyway from our office. So we might go for the first day or two or three in you know some market where we know we can get the patients and physicians at least you know a few of them you know one of the bigger markets uh, where we can go to 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 kind of fill the room at the time for in person and then that gives the team an opportunity to sort of establish okay you know let's work out the kinks in the discussion guide the stimulus okay we're set okay break then everybody kind of goes back to where they were save on you know travel because people get tired of being on the on the road as well as travel budgets and do the rest of the patient and physician interviews from the office and use you know, a lot of video conferencing. So um, from that perspective, we put together you know, a couple of proposal slides that sort of emphasized our, like we already had an established process for doing qualitative online and remotely, and it's worked very effectively. We just have expanded that a little bit and can easily meet your needs on the qualitative side you know, as everybody's from home. You know, there, there's always technical issues with patients who have an old laptop that they're trying to get set up. You know, you're in the middle of an interview. So sometimes you're you're hopping to phone and hopping off the phone and onto the computer or they're having to reboot their computer. But we just kind of roll with the punches. That's just the way yeah. things are now. Yeah. I feel like we're all just trying to figure it out and doing the best we can as we get through this, right? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. We have some, you know, everyone's just been really great about rolling with, it, especially our clients. Yeah. You know, they, they have kids in the background that are, right. are walking through. We're doing a lot of video conferences and yeah. it's funny. I got, I have two cats at the house here, so they're always pawing at my door and I'm trying to have a conference. <laughs> I have to actually literally let them in or else I make so much noise. I can't even talk. Andrew has a couple of cats pawing at his door every day as well. Um, uh, <laughs> not literal cats, small children. But right. three, <laughs> Kentucky daycares are now open. I am ashamed to say how much I am enjoying having the house completely to myself. I've I've never heard Andrew so happy yesterday. I think when I spoke to him that. He got to actually focus on work and concentrate without having a little bit of the distractions. Happiest I've heard him in probably three months. <laughs> that's that's great. It is difficult to try <laughs> to, to balance that. We, you know, there's a fair number of younger um, women and even guys in our company, and they have we've had meetings about like, okay, well, we need to be more flexible because actually we have a couple that's married that works for us. And so they're like, well, I can't be on a meeting this time because I have to watch the kids. And then they kind of do trading off and shifts and things like that. So we've, you know, tried to be as sensitive about that as possible. But, you know, it's yeah. not an easy juggling act. Yeah. And what about distractions for the respondents? Um, a question I'd love to hear. Have you seen changes in response rates? We we wrote a blog about changes in response rates. But my guess is it's been fluctuating throughout the last few months. And so have you seen it from patients or from physicians? Any any changes on your end? Um, for patients, 
we sort of got the sense and from and I think maybe some of the the work that you've done and some of other partners that everyone's from home so they're almost more available. Yeah. They may be looking to get a couple extra dollars. I mean from a from an interview standpoint, you can do pretty well if you I mean it, it, again it's it's a bad situation to be in if you have any conditions, but you know there there's an opportunity within market research cuz everybody wants to hear from you. Um, so there's almost been a little bit more availability on the on the patient side. On the physician side, again, it, it's kind of a weird answer where initially, yeah, they were we didn't see any impact. We looked across Europe and we looked across the U.S. and there didn't seem to be much. Nobody was indicating any kind of impact. In fact, maybe there were a few, you know, a little bit more availability. Now again, we don't deal a lot with on the ER side. In, in the infectious disease area where I think that they were probably, you know, you're probably going to run into a different story during those couple of weeks. But then over time, as things started opened up, we, we got a little bit of wind that, okay, well, now everyone's flooding into the offices. Now they have packed schedules and they're trying to make up, you know, somebody who was a diabetic who was scheduled to come in in March, they're holding off and they're going into April because they have to go in. Um, so, you know the physicians we've heard again are uh, were a little bit more um, you know stressed, just have a, a busier load. But on the research side, we we didn't see a big impact coming through. It's kind of hard to see you know from season to season if even going you know PCP is the same target area whether you're getting feasibility or not. But we really haven't had much of an issue meeting our quotas for the most part. Um, there, there's always challenges for specific subgroups, but for the most part. You know, again, luckily, we haven't seen a big impact. It's actually impressive to me that I've heard that from other companies as well, that I think that more traditional researchers like myself were really into the response rate impact of the research and the decisions that were being made out of it. And so I, when this happened in March, I started scrambling and talking to as many sample providers as possible, talking to my peer network, talking to other researchers about... Um, what are you seeing with response rates? Um, is it something? Is it volatile? Um, is there a difference by age or gender or by device? And it, they really didn't change that much. And I expected mm-hmm. that it would. We saw a little bit of change here and there with some B two B respondents, and we saw we had to you know relax our digital fingerprinting because more people were working from home, and so they were using VPNs, and so we had to adjust for that. We saw that people were using more desktops and laptops than previous which we think is because they're working from home and, you know, their coworkers aren't looking over their shoulders. So they're probably more <laughs> likely to just use their work computer to take a, a survey rather than they're probably their, their um, smartphone. But mm-hmm. overall, we didn't see a lot of changes. And I don't know if that's, a, I guess that's a good thing, but I'm just, I'm, I'm really surprised about it overall. So kind of my take. Yeah, yeah, I think you guys are in a great position because you do have, you're not just like a proprietary panel. You have this opportunity to reach out to all these other partner panels that you guys work with and kind of hear what's the scuttlebutt, what's going on between each of them and kind of piece together a broader story. So I think you guys have probably been in a pretty good position throughout this whole thing. Yeah, we, we were fortunate that we, you know, early on, we could reach out to Asia and our Italian partners and get some insights and it started spreading through Europe. And so we kind of, we had a hypothesis that wasn't going to affect things too much. And, but I still thought in the U.S., the U.S. is always a weird market regardless of what we do. I thought it would be much more disruptive. And I guess I'm um, pleasantly surprised. When you're conducting research during this time, did you, did you come up with any like best practices or certain questions that should be included in the research? Or did you do anything a little bit differently to, to kind of leverage anything? Not from a methodology standpoint, you know, other than what I was talking about with qualitative and having to be a little bit more online than we had normally been, not really from a methodology standpoint. Um, in terms of survey design, probably like a, a lot of people doing this type of research, you know, especially in the pharmaceutical areas, when you're talking to, to patients and physicians, we typically have to caveat or want to caveat at least a couple of times and actually have a conversation with the client as well. Okay, we, let, let's, let's get on level footing here. Do we want to ask them to think about prior to COVID-19 coming on the scene? Um, or, or if you're talking about future or after it's left, because 
those discussions about when you were last prescribed, how often you're taking your medications, um, what have those conversations with your physicians been like, you know, what, what topics are you bringing up? All those sorts of questions have for sure been impacted over the last couple of months and will continue to be impacted. I mean, we, we constantly hear about this, this fear that, believe it or not, people are taking you know, life-saving medications on an ongoing basis. They may skip doses if they don't have the money to pay for them. Yeah. Um, th- there are many people making those decisions or if they're scared or, or now don't have um, a way transportation to get to the to the pharmacy they want to get to, or you know, there can be a whole host of things, but that's all going to impact their ability to their discontinuation rates and and anything else involved in their decision to take medications or or when they might get their scripts refilled, things like that. So to get back to your question, so yeah, at the beginning we typically want to establish whether we are talking sort of normal, like, like you know, prior to, to COVID-19, you know, six months ago, whatever that looks like, um, or whether we actually do want. So, you know, now how is this impacting you? And, um, and so we, you know, a number of times have included in modules of questions and that typically revolves around telemedicine. And, and sometimes it's, has the telemedicine, you know, been available to you before this? Is, do, you, do you know it's available now? Is your physician actually offering in-office visits, um, you know, interactions if they have had telemedicine, you know, calls in with the, the nurse or their physician? And, you know, I think part of what our clients are interested also in is, is there a new norm here where telemedicine is going to be more um, more a part of the relationship that patients have with their physicians on an ongoing basis. As we're, you know, thinking a lot about this working from home and um, teleworking aspect being, you know, maybe not the dominant form in the future, but certainly people are going to be more used to it and more apt to use it. Is that the same thing happening on the telemedicine side? Yeah, I think if if there were any positives that came out of the, the past few months, one of them is would be the advancement of telemedicine and. I mean, it's amazing that, I don't know, I think we'll look back on in 15 years that, oh, every time you got sick, you just walked into a, a doctor's office or you just walked into uh, an ER and you may infect other people. Um, and, you know, in most cases, you probably could just use telemedicine and call your doctor and, okay, you have a sinus infection, here's a script, right? So you're not just kind of wandering around getting people sick. That's one of the few positive I'm hoping that come out of this. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's you know going to change some things. You know, a funny yeah. story that um, my my brother in law and sister in law I heard about. Well, you know, he, he had a, had to go in for a dermatology appointment, but he wasn't didn't want to go in in person. Right. <laughs> so his wife had um, his camera, and he was she was videotaping <laughs> places on his body, so the dermatologist <laughs> over the a video camera could say, you know, well, that looks suspicious. No, that looks okay. You know, you know, you know, pull that skin over there and you know, take a look. So I just thought it was kind of funny that, um, you know, that people are going to make things work. Um, it's just, you know, surprising how adaptive everybody has been. Yeah, that, that's amazing that we have the ability to do that now. And we're just now leveraging it. And I, I keep thinking about mental health. I think there's might be some advantages to telehealth with mental health with you can see um, the context of someone's environment if you're talking to someone about mental health. And so that's off topic, but I think that hopefully that we learn a ton in these few months to improve healthcare overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I just hope something positive comes out of all this. Yeah. I believe it's something has to. Right. Um, I want to change topics. Link EQ is something that you all have put out a report, basically. Um, I'm just going to read the title of it. Um, anxiety and acceptance, the emotional state of primary care physicians in the COVID-19 environment. I'd love to hear more about that. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, you know, there, there's, we're always looking for what's a, what's a new basically best practice or a new methodology. And we're always hearing, especially given the amount of qualitative work, so, you know, I, I want it to be more emotional. I want to really understand what patients and physicians as well what they're really feeling inside, what's that connection to, to them? You know, you're always trying to, you know, through advertising or messaging or whatever it is, like I'm trying to appeal to them on an emotional level because we know it's stronger and we want to understand what that connection is. What are the emotions for each of these uh, components? 
And so there's been a lot of behavioral economic models going out. We went to you know, a number of different conferences and, and it was like everybody had their own version. And we thought, well, you know, we, we oftentimes have conversations. We have, you know, projective techniques that we use in qualitative to kind of get at that. But on the quantitative side, is there a way to do this? And so we started exploring that several years ago and developed, you know, what we call Link EQ. And it's, you know, it's funny because I'm on the quantitative side. So I tend to be fairly, you know, cut and try about things. Oh, let me see the numbers. I was a little skeptical of the whole thing at first. But over the last couple of years of seeing it develop and, you know, as we're, we're honing the way that we're calculating emotions and the way we're asking the questions and things like that, I become a, a pretty big believer that it's tapping into some really interesting aspects and, and they are underneath the surface. So the whole idea of LinkEQ is to really drive into that sort of system one, you know, lizard brain, if you will, sort of that, that deep emotional state. You know, system two is more like, asking somebody, so how are you feeling today? And, you know, they can provide you some kind of linkage to that. But a lot of times they're, they're pulling punches or you never know if you're, you're getting at it, you know, more directly, like, well, what's their visceral reaction? How are they really, really feeling inside? And so what LinkEQ is, it's an opportunity within a survey setting. It's only like a three minute module that we're adding into more and more of our quantitative projects that gets at that. It's a, it's a way to tap into that via sort of very quick emotional selections that the respondent makes. And the way that it's set up and the timing of it really brings that forward. They don't have time to think about it too much. They have to react very, very quickly to what's going on in the screen. And, you know, the, you could say there's lots of issues with that online. I was, again, I was a, a bit skeptical that we would find much. But over the past couple of years, like I said, I, I've been a bit surprised. So there's 24 base emotions that we measure, and we can even derive and calculate other emotions like hope or frustration. So, and, and, and the, really the proof is in the pudding, right? So when you take the emotional measurement that we have and you bounce that against behaviors, whether it's prescribing or taking medications or brand choice on the patient's side or liking of a concept, especially in concept testing. What are you trying to do? You're trying to elicit emotion. You're trying to elicit that desire for the medication. And when you're combined link EQ in studies like that, it's really amazing at how easily you can break apart, even on the behavioral level, which is really the ultimate goal that you're trying to link to, being able to explain how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way. So, you know, it's, it's not just, okay, well, we're making them buy more. It's like, why? We need to tap into that and understand, is it out of fear or is it out of sort of an, um, you know, a trust or admiration aspect? Because you know, the ad agencies who develop all these concepts and messages as well, everything that goes out to patients and physicians, they, you know, they rely on that quite a bit. They're normally working you know, in a dark room. Like we don't really know. We, we think we're going to try to elicit this, that, and the other. Um, and then with Link EQ, we can tell a little bit more clearly what respondents are feeling and give the why aspect and, and elicit that emotion and try to connect it within the, the analysis. So yeah, like I said, I, I've been pretty impressed with how much it's been able to uh, uncover and reveal within you know, the, the storing, storytelling aspects of our reporting and analysis. So um, yeah, I mean, that, that's part of almost all of our sales decks now. We really like to tout it because I think it's a, the way we're doing it is completely unique from anybody else. I haven't seen anybody else doing anything close to this. And it's, it's really telling and helpful. Yeah, I read through it. It's, I'm really impressed with a few things. One of them is that this was all done in one day, it looks like. It was a three-minute survey with 75 people on May 6th. And so you're really kind of measuring at that point in time. And one thing I liked about it is you, you acknowledge this in the report that physicians are notoriously loath to share emotions as they prefer to maintain a rational scientific appearance. But the the report itself, like the insights you're getting out of this, you mentioned all these different emotions and that you can glean out of it. And part of it made me sad, but I can really relate to it. That I think there's a part where the head on a swivel that you're very mm -hmm. you're feeling both positive and negative. That's how physicians are feeling. They're they can't see patients in person. It provides anxiety. It's an emotional hit for them. 
50% felt sorrow, uncharted territory, and apprehensive about the future of practicing medicine. So many like emotional, like melancholy was in sadness and dread were part of this. But mm-hmm. I can relate to this because that's how I think we were all feeling. And I didn't think about the empathy to have towards PCPs whose job is really disrupted during this time period and um, having to adapt to different things and couldn't see patients. And so, you know, I love this research and I, you're doing it again, I'm assuming, right? Yes. We've, we've um, put this out to a lot of different groups. Again, it's sort of a bit research on research, using it as a, a tool to describe how link EQ can be used. And like you said, it, it the, the, the feedback has been really interesting. We, you know, we often forget that physicians, well, they're people too. They're not just right. you know, this clinician sitting there making these cut and dry decisions. They have a business that they're trying to run that's being yeah. impacted financially. They have kids at home they're you know, trying to bring a paycheck, paycheck home to. So yeah, we kind of saw all that you know, rise to the surface here a little bit more. Right. Can people, if people want a copy of this, can they reach out to the link group or to yourself personally, I'm assuming? Yes, yes, please do. Happy to share it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on. And this is a surprise question I'm going to throw at you because we've been talking a lot more about data quality the past few podcasts. And it's always top of mind for me. And I bet for you all too, having had conversations with your team as well, I know it is. But think about data quality. Do you think, do you think about, or does the link group think about data quality differently? Um, in terms of healthcare, as we do, most of what I do is in consumer. Do you have to think about it a little bit differently when you're dealing with physicians or sufferers of um, illnesses? So, yeah, it's, there, there's a lot of components in there, and I'll, I'll try not to be too yeah. long-winded about it. <laughs> On the physician side, I feel fairly good. We have a, a pretty low cl- clean-out rate I, with yeah. physicians being sort of validated you know, that, that they are actually who they say they are. And, you know, our panel providers and you guys, you know, are pretty diligent about knocking people out of panels, the physicians out of panels who are not paying attention. Our clean out rates for physicians are, are very low, which is good. It's kind of nice to see that. I mean, occasionally we run across speeders and things like that. We, we're normally very, very diligent about data quality. Um, and too many times in, in my career, I've run across a data set where I was looking there. I was like, something looks funny here. I start pulling them back the onion a couple layers. I'm like, oh, there you go. There's 15 people who are playing games. So I got to toss them <laughs> out and redo the analysis. <laughs> yeah. That's no fun at all. Yeah. On the consumer side, on the consumer side, yeah, for, for sure. That's where I, I, I try to be pretty careful because it feels like it's a little bit more open. The recruiting you know, can take on a little bit more. Um, you know, free for all mentality from people. So we try to be very diligent about that. And we see, you know, a lot of bots coming in from China and, you know, so a lot of other countries, not to single out China, but that's recent experience that we had. And then sometimes we feel like it's real people and actually real people sitting there just getting paid to take surveys. Um, so we pretty try to be pretty diligent about that. On the patient side, again, th- there's you guys and everybody does you know, a pretty good job of asking people what they're and have them profiled with certain conditions. And so for the most part, we see it tends to be, you know, the panel members tend to be pretty vetted already. Again, there, there's always a certain percentage that we have to clean out and that's perfectly fine. It's just part of the job. Once we start getting into lower incidence patients, that's when, you know, you kind of have to open up the panel's to you know a broader audience and, and right. again there's a little bit less control over that and that's where we also have to be very very careful because our sample sizes you know might be 50 and if 15 of those are not real people then you know we're we're, we're in trouble so it, it just kind of depends on what we're looking at with data quality but yeah we have we have documentation out the wazoo on, you know, cleaning algorithms and things like that and things to look for. We, we read a lot of open ends. In fact, yesterday I, threw, I looked through two data sets to, and, you know, scan through open ends. Like, are you, are they using the same words? Is this the same person? I think maybe it is. Let's on the safe side, let's just drop them out. So right. yeah, hopefully that's your question. It's, you know, there's a lot involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that sounds great. Andrew, I've hogged the interview for the past 15 minutes, and I apologize for that. That's on me. And 
we went through a lot of topics there and I didn't ask for your perspective or give you a chance for the follow up with any questions. I'm curious if you <laughs> had a point of view or question or anything. No, that's totally fine, Brian. It's totally fine. Yeah, you know, I maybe just following up with Steve a little bit more, you know, kind of pushing on the, you know, the, from from a sampling perspective, specifically as it pertains to data quality in the patient space. Are there things that you're looking at differently in the data set? Um, as you would with a consumer survey when you're trying to determine the quality of of a respondent and whether or not you're ultimately going to include them in your analysis. Um, you know, specifically, I think that I've heard from some researchers, you know, that they may be, you know, more lenient with open ends if it's a particularly... I, the words that are coming to mind are kind of like morbid or depressing disease state. Um, someone who's in the terminal stages of a cancer, right? You know, they might not be very happy with taking the survey in general. Oh, sure. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering, you know, is that something that when you're reviewing open ends, is that something that you take a look at, uh, especially compared to, you know, a survey about shoes or something where you might be, you know, kind of more, um, prone to to give someone the act the axe if they're being uh short with you right right yeah that's a great question um i feel like as long as they're providing some level of information i mean the, the qualitative is usually the open ends are usually used to add some color to it so i'm not going to ding somebody for being a little brief um and like you said you know you know, I, I run an ATU with metastatic breast cancer um, patients, stage four, so they're pretty far far advanced. And even with that group, and you know, with you know, really across the board for patients, I find that when they're taking the surveys, they they almost seem to enjoy. At least I like to think they're they sort of enjoy talking um, about what's going on with them and answering the questions. We get a, we ask a question always at the end of the survey, you know, so what do you think about this survey? Just sort of an open end, give them a chance to, to vent or say they liked it or to say thank you, whatever they want to do. And we hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is great. This was really well constructed. It, you know, it, it was nice to answer some of these questions. It's, it, you know, that's not the majority by a long shot, but I generally find that their responses are very thoughtful and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to do the best they can. Um, you know, and obviously not everyone's a, a great typist. So we try to work around the, the, the misspellings and, and the, the grammar and stuff like that. I, again, I don't concern myself with that. Just that a respondent is providing some level of consideration. And even if the open ends are not very good at all, as long as I feel like the close ended the the ratings and, and other than selections like that were were honest. They were based on some kind of thought and reflection of what they were actually feeling and and, and thinking and what they do, because that's really what we're trying to to capture there. Again, if they're not big typers or whatever, I'm not going to hold them. You know, hold back on them. I oftentimes use the open ends like to try to to identify if somebody's the same person if they say the exact same thing. And you ask also ask you know about patients in general versus consumer, I'll, I'll kind of link to that as well. I, I find cleaning data a little bit easier on the patient side than consumer because patient side, there's, it's like, well, you, you can't be on this multiple of medications. You can't have done this and also done that. So, you know, typically with our surveys, there's sort of a story flow, you know, when were you diagnosed and how long have you been on this medication and then that one, that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a logical order to all that, whereas it doesn't really matter whether they shopped at Home Depot first or Lowe's or you know bought a gutter system or whatever that is on the consumer side. Um, so I, I tend to find it a little bit easier on with patients, and that they are they're very thoughtful in a lot of the the open ends that they provide for the most part. I have two follow ups to that. The first one is sort of a direct follow up, but a little bit more abstract. So I'm actually going to move it back a bit and ask you a question about um so when when you're when we as online quantitative researchers are designing a survey one of the most important things is the screener 
And one of the most important things that affects the data quality is that the screener makes sure that the people who are getting into the survey are the right folks, right? And, you know, you mentioned that we all do our darndest to make sure that respondents are pre-profiled in a non-leading way, um, that there's as much validation as possible, and so on and so forth, so that, you know, when someone says, you know, hey, I have diabetes, they actually have diabetes, they're just not suspecting that they will get more surveys or higher incentive surveys by saying that they have a disease state. So I'm curious, when you're designing screeners, um, and, and you actually alluded to this a little bit as well, when you're talking about there being sort of logical contraindications, right? You know, that mm-hmm. someone can't have this and this. I'm curious if you could give us just a few examples of, you know, maybe it's not in the screener, maybe they're trap questions. Mm, you know, yeah. What goes to the design to verify for you? Because I, I can only tell you this person has previously told us that they have this disease state. What additional steps do you take as sort of quality checks on verifying that someone is the type of patient they say they are? Mm, that, that's a great question. Um, we we have um, you know worked at trying to coalesce, you know, bring together a bunch of different you know, angles at getting at that question in documentation. And so we have, you know, almost like 30, 40 different survey questions and survey types that might go into different aspects of a survey that I can open up at any point and take a look where, you know, some examples and it's, it's, you know, weird stuff and it sounds weird, but stuff like, you know, which of these is colored blue, which of these is a triangle. We'll ask about, something, like you said, contraindications. I recently, actually for the metastatic breast cancer study I run, I I made up a kind of cancer and I put it in there just to see if somebody selects it. Well, then we know they're they're game. Unfortunately, nobody selected. I was laughing about that with one of my colleagues. I was like, well, I bothered to come up with a name and nobody selected. I didn't catch anybody with it. But we'll take a look at at some of those things. Um, Asking like the diagnosis question, asking it again at the end of the survey, making sure that they match because that's something that's not up for you know debate. You know, you, they either have it or they don't. So it's a good sort of you know way to to validate. Then there's some other questions about you know throughout. We'll say you know for quality control purposes, you know please select four here. Uh, we'll we'll bring that in and then we prompt them if they don't select four. You know please take your time. Think about your responses. So we'll try to stop them there. Maybe try to bring them back in the loop. Maybe they're watching Jeopardy at the same time they're taking their survey, you know, in front of them. Again, that stuff happens. So um, you know, just giving them a little bit of prompt to to go through. So there's various questions like that that we can use to validate or ask for certain types of response patterns or, or something like that too. And there's usually we call them QC checks, quality control checks. Um, not very creative, but it's very descriptive. There's usually three or four or five of them within a survey and they get, you know, that they have to, if they fail, you know, X number of them, then along with other things like time in the survey, straight lining, other things like that, then we would, you know, consider them not good quality respondent, either because they're not paying attention or because they're not the person we think they are. That's great. That's a lot of good research going on with those different methodologies you're using. Um, okay, so my my second question, um, and I actually work on that ATU with Steve um, for our listeners, and I recall, you know, the very first time that we ran it, that open end at the back, just kind of asking what was your experience. Your colleague, Gordon, who I ran the study with, actually reached out to me separately and said, you know these respondents were just absolutely, I mean, they were really, they were like thrilled that someone asked their opinion on the types of questions that you all were asking. So, you know, one thing that I, and I think perhaps a lot of people in our industry struggle with a little bit, you know, technically, what do I do on a daily basis? Technically, I'm brokering primary quantitative data collection. Ooh, right? (laughs) You know, whereas my wife is a nurse and she's going and literally changing people's lives at some of the lowest moments that they have, she's providing care, right? And she's, you know, can come home and feel really, really good about what she has done that day. 
So my question to you is doing so much pharmaceutical research, um, you know, do you as a researcher feel kind of like a sense of validation or purpose or contribution around the type of research that you're doing? Is that something that kind of plays into Steve as a person? (laughs) That's an interesting and deep question. Um, yeah, yes. I, I mean, I mean, as opposed to your wife, I, in Mark Research, I don't feel like I am going and changing people's lives per se. Um, you know, so I wouldn't kid myself from that standpoint. Um, and this is this is advertising. I get I get some conversations with some people saying, well, you know, you're just trying to peddle pharmaceuticals and you don't care about the patients and things like that. They're not that blunt with it, but that's sort of the undertone with it. From my perspective, I. I, you know, there's going to be the economics of pharmaceutical companies like it or not, that um, they have to make money in what they're doing. They have to be profitable. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why in the U.S., just because of our sort of capitalist you know, society that, you know, we're so advanced. One of the reasons why we're so advanced from a healthcare perspective is because there, there is that allows people to drive forward and make money. Again, I don't want to get too much into the philosophy of that or the the, the, the social ramifications. But again, from my standpoint, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to help patients and physicians and, and pharmaceutical companies connect. Um, if, if the pharmaceutical companies can't rely on and can't know what to move forward with, like, will anybody use this drug? They're not going to invest the money in developing it. Physicians won't have it to prescribe and patients won't have it to take. Again, I, I don't feel like I'm the linchpin developing the molecules and, and from that standpoint, but there is an aspect of kind of helping make that connection, helping everybody here, so almost on an equal platform. Let, you know, let's hear back and forth. Um, you know, what, what are the feelings there? What, what's going on between them so that, you know, there can be something brought to market and brought to market in a way that accurately describes via the messaging what is being provided so physicians are informed and then can make and hopefully informed decisions on themselves. I understand there's a, a level of you know advertising and, and pushing and things like that, but there there is, I do feel, um, an aspect of making that connection and performing if you know quote unquote a, a service from that perspective. Thank you very much for the deep answer to the deep question because <laughs> now, at least for all the work that we do together, I can take that and I can add that to to my purpose of why I'm doing what I'm doing every day. And, you know, I, I really liked what you said about the economics of it, because at the end of the day, right, everything is economics. I'm not sure if you have ever read um, Freakonomics or if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it, right? But yes. um, everything is economics. Um and of course, everything that we use that makes our lives easier or better, and particularly, you know, in this space, things that we actually use to treat our health are all created by companies. And so to have that perspective in mind that, you know, we're part of a chain that is helping people get what they need and or, you know, doctors and patients understanding what that product is so that it does come to market, especially with where you're involved in the the process, right? That, you know, you said you're doing research for something that's two to three years out. That's really valuable. That's a wonderful perspective. I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question. I almost didn't. Am, am I getting a little bit too philosophical or off I'm glad I had an so answer for it. You know, what, what's <laughs> interesting is that sometimes we're even involved, you know, a product might be in stage two trials. So there are decisions being made there that were, again, the economy, economics of it and making money has to place some kind of undertone level. But at the same time, again, it's so hard and so much money is invested in these clinical trials that... You know, they can say, oh, we, we think this is going to be good, but if the physicians are not going to react well to it, again, that's just money down the tubes that a company has invested, and then they're going to be less likely to come out with new medications, new options. I mean, like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, over the past 15, 20 years, it feels like there's just been a proliferation of drugs. There's certainly a negative aspect of that. Oh, well, people are just jockeying for a name. Uh, people are just trying to, to kind of push their brand without it really being efficacious. 
But now you got to think from the physician standpoint, you're, you hope your physician is making smart decisions. They have choices. They can decide whether this one drug is a little bit higher on safety, maybe a little bit less on efficacy. That is the drug for you. So I feel like having options there that play, you know, a little dance between the pros and the cons, you know, having that ability to make that decision is, is very important. I mean, you can think about that, you know, in anything that you purchase, you go buy a car. Well, you know, I'm not getting the legroom that I want, but I'm getting the the horsepower that I want. So there's all these trade-offs and it really, it benefits people to have these options. All right, Ryan, that we, we've, we've talked about healthcare research for almost an hour now. Is it to the fun of the podcast? No, I know I I feel bad, but I I do want to respect Steve's time and our listeners' time as well. Is it time to switch? I'm so excited because I already know what we're going to talk about. Glad that is it time? to the fun. I'm glad you're doing the transition instead of me because you had these insightful questions, and then you know for 15 minutes that was an amazing conversation. Then I'm going to ask about you know, funny things he does during quarantine, but let's do it. Let's get some fun (laughs) stuff. Um, Four P's. Brian, by the way, we need some four P's music at some point. Um, Let's get a sponsor for the four P's section. First P is perform. Uh, Steve, what's something that people don't know about you? Do you have hidden talent? Um, I, uh, I, I'm not sure I, I do. I, I enjoy fixing things and my wife enjoys it. I like fixing things. That's that's a talent. uh, I'll play that into the next part of my conversation. Okay. Um, next P is pandemic. My new favorite P, um, at least on the podcast. What are some funny things that you're doing during the quarantine? So, uh, like, like I just alluded to, um, you know, we moved, just moved into that this house uh, four years ago, and my wife has been very much in favor of getting chickens. And I'm like, chickens? I did not grow up on a farm. I am not a chicken guy. So I, you know, I've been giving her the the sideways look. Like seriously, for the last couple of years. And, um, you know, she's not working now. So uh, because of the, again, because of the pandemic, she's like, I need something. I want some chickens. I'm like, you know, fine. I, I'm stuck at home. I could probably use a little bit of a distraction as well. So about six weeks ago, we got four little, little baby chickens. They're like uh, four or five, six days old. Uh, they were in the house up until recently. So we had them in a cardboard box upstairs for um, about four weeks. And uh, my wife had a ginormous, <laughs> was it six by 10 chicken coop built and put into our backyard. So now they are running around like crazy there. So, and it's funny, I said, I started saying like, I did not grow up on a farm and uh, I'm not a chicken person, but I have been actually been kind of surprised at how affectionate they are. And, you know, almost, they're almost like pets now, you know, we have names for them, you know, uh, well, we, we couldn't resist. So their names are, are tenders, <laughs> biscuit, tetrazzini and noodles. Um, so they're, you know, all chicken related. That's awesome. But, but yeah, they're, they're, they're funny. We go into the, sometimes I'll go out there and just sit down and have coffee inside the coop and they'll come up and they'll jump on my legs and just kind of sit there and look at me. And, uh, it's just kind of funny so that they really have become more like pets amazing. now. And, you know, I can go take a little break outside and take a look at them run around. They grow like crazy. All they do is eat and poop <laughs> and they, they grow, they grow phenomenally fast. So they're all, you know, getting about half size now. Awesome. I want to see a picture of the chickens at some point. Uh, I'll have to send you one. Yes. <laughs> Next P is pride. What's your, I doubt this is your biggest source of pride, but I, do you, what's your biggest source of pride or biggest accomplishment, both either per, Professional or personal? Um, just because we've been talking so much about the professional side, um, an aspect of pride, I think, is you know I've been with the company for about eighteen years now, and so I've seen a lot of change. You know, we've grown from, like I said, when I started, we were fifteen or so people, and now we're eighty-three. I, I guess I take a lot of professional and personal pride in knowing and feeling like I've you know made a contribution to the organization as we've grown. You know, my, part of my sales pitch now. Is more like well, I used to talk us being this about this us being this small boutique <laughs> market research firm, firm. Now we're a mid-sized, you know, small, <laughs> small-minded or small culturally speaking boutique market research firm where we really try to provide the same level of service we always have, uh, just with more capabilities and more flexibility and all those things. So um, I have tried very hard over the past eighteen years to try to make that happen and kind of keep that small company culture where 
everybody knows everybody's first name. Everybody knows, you know, their dog's names and their kids' names. And, and you know, we all have a very close knit, you know, um, you know, interactions and friendships. So uh, it's really what we call it the, the link group family. And that's really, um, I think that's really the case. You should have a sense of pride for that. And I remember, I think I was in your Raleigh office and I think they're, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the lobby, there's like a, almost like a history of the link group, which I was fascinated with. And um, it just really talks about how the company really respects its heritage and acknowledges all the hard work that went into the growth of its experience. I think that was the Raleigh office, but I'm waiting on my, waiting on my invite to the um, Virgin Islands in Florida office, by the way. <laughs> we used to have an office there. No longer, okay. but we did at one point. <laughs> Andrew, I think I interrupted you there. Well, I think you know, speaking to you know what a great place you've helped build the Link Group into being as well. Doesn't the Link Group have um, just like an absurdly low turnover rate, Steve? Yes, yeah, that that is something. I mean, and and Brad Cameron and Tom File, the two you know owners of the company who started it, they have done. I, you know, I can't say enough about what an incredible job they have done in building a culture where, you know, everybody hopefully feels heard and, and loved and appreciated. Uh, they go out of their way uh, quite a bit to make sure that everyone has, you know, a very good professional as well as personal experience. We, you know, most of our hires we found works much, much better when we hire people directly out of school. Believe it or not, they don't have much, if any, work experience. They're coming straight out of college but we hire very motivated people, very sharp people, and whether their background is in market research or not, you know, we bring them into the fold and we train the heck out of people. We put them in all kinds of situations. We um, and we really almost drown them in training. Make sure they have exposure to everything. Maybe make sure they have opportunities. There is no time frame for anybody in terms of you know when they can advance to the next level or the amount of responsibilities they have. It's like all a matter of what they can rise to. So really kind of providing that culture, that open culture and fostering people and kind of taking them from directly out of school and, and, and having given them their first professional experience, I think is, is done a really good job for us to, you know, um, you know, have such a low turnover rate and, and have people feel like they, they have a home and they have some place that they can feel comfortable in and like they're learning and they're having professional accomplishments. So yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic place to work. Awesome. And last P, if you have a podium, this is a uh, top three of something, you get to pick the top three of something, then Andrew and I will argue with you or we'll, you know, participate in some way. <laughs> Probably won't argue. Oh, oh, top three. I'm not sure I was ready okay. for this. You don't um, have to. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I don't, I don't have really have a, a That's top okay. Three. We took enough of your time as it is. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, super insightful talking about all the research that the link group does and talking about the company at the end, you know, a lot of the, the cultural part of the link group. And so Steve, um, thank you so much for joining, um, reach out to Steve. If you want to learn more about LinkEQ or the link group, or just have probably have some healthcare related questions and, uh, Andrew DeSellis, thanks for joining as well. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you to Steve Bernard, and thank you to Andrew DeSillis. I feel like the first half of the interview I took, and then the second half of the interview you took, and you were much better at the interview than I was, by the way. I don't know about that, Brian. I don't know about better. Um, well, he asked, he said, oh, you know, he was like, oh, what an insightful question. And, you know, he said that multiple times, and you led him down a path that wasn't really pre-planned. It was just you two kind of talking, and I was just – I just kind of sat back and let you two have an awesome discussion. Well, you know, it, it's uh, it's a little bit unfair because, you know, you were able to ask all of the really sort of hard-hitting technical questions around research, um, you know, and asking him, of course, you know, a lot of the questions about, about Link Group and about the pharmaceutical industry and things like that, um, which leaves more, more for me to do kind of the exciting, you know, deep questions, if you will. Um, so, you know, yeah, no, don't, don't, don't write yourself off. I think, you know, and, and keep in mind too, a lot of our listeners are researchers, right? And everything yeah. 
we talked about in the front half of the interview, just as valuable as the second half of the interview. Um, and hey, me personally, I'm just here for the four Ps at the end. I want to hear about <laughs> those chickens. Uh, yeah. I hope everyone else enjoyed that um, as much as I did. And I think that is the third time we've talked about the giant chicken in Marietta, Georgia. And so um, I was excited to be able to bring that in the conversation. It's one of my favorite things in the Atlanta area. Um, and thanks again to Steve Bernard and the Link Group. They're just a great group of people. So I'd reach out to them. If you have any questions, uh, you know, especially about Link EQ, which we barely even touched on, there was a whole lot more to that report that we couldn't really get in depth on. And so um, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Brian. Uh, sorry about the Twitter mess- mishap this week. And we'll talk to everybody next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.